This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Darwinism, Creationism, and Mysticism, recorded July 17, 2005, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, uh, here is the question. As spiritual scientists, quote-unquote, we must always be prepared to question what we think and know. Paradigms come and go. Teachers of Advaita, such as Nisargadatta and Ramana Maharshi, refer to the truth of non-becoming. By this, I believe it is meant that the world and self spring into being spontaneously, without cause, or sometimes it is taught that all manifestation is its own cause, or sometimes it is taught that it never comes into being, the, uh, the Buddhist view is that everything is threatening to come into being. It doesn't quite make it all the way, you know. It just has the sort of appearance of coming into being. Anyway, he goes on. I guess this is another question based on the confusion of relative with the absolute. How can it be that I find myself more in agreement with creationists than with purveyors of Darwinian-style scientific evolution theory. Any uh, preferred scientific explanation involving a causal chain begs a beginning or first cause, which I suspect can never be found, thereby rendering its value as an explanation absurdly empty. If in the beginning was the word, then the word may as well have been abracadabra. Vit, uh, where are you? Like, yeah, it was abracadabra. You got it. You know One of the secrets of the mystics I'm giving away here this morning. Okay. It might just as well have been abracadabra because all that appears appears as if by magic. And magic is ultimately a more rational explanation for all this than any scientific theories, uh, evoking interminable chains of causes and effects. This is more of a statement so far than a question. <laughs> I went, you know, it's interesting. But then he has the question. So the question is, it's all just a big magic trick, right? <laughs> so, the short answer to your question is yes. <laughs> it's a big magic trick. And actually, it's interesting because the Sanskrit word for this illusion of appearances is maya. <coughs> a lot of you know. And Maya is actually etymologically related to magic. And the early writings in Sanskrit, the early Hindu writings and stuff about Maya, it's come to have a negative uh, connotation these days, but originally it didn't. It was God's Maya, God's magic. And all this was produced by God as like a big magic trick. And the point was uh, not to get rid of it, because we all love good magicians, but to see through the trick. So... It's a very good mystical way of viewing all this. But this question inspired me to look up creationism because, you know, I read about in the newspapers these battles, the creationists and the Darwinians and stuff like that. But I really didn't know much about it. So I started to look this up and I was kind of amazed at what's going on out there. And so it inspired another talk and that is where do mystics stand in the debate between creationists and Darwinians? Which is, you know, one of the hot spots in the cultural wars these days. 
And I figure an organization called the Center for Sacred Sciences must have something to say about all this, you know. Uh, and I must tell you here, I'm not speaking for the organization. We haven't had a board meeting about this and approved what I say. So it's, I'm speaking more personally. And uh, if any board members want to object, of course, they're welcome to and speak up. But in any case, so I thought I'd address this question. So in general, where do mystics stand? And of course, since the, the great mystics of the past didn't have to face this particular question, we have to extrapolate a little bit from their teachings and sort of say, what would they have said? And I'm going to certainly tell you what I say, uh, but you can go from there. You can take it from there. So the first thing is to define our terms. What is creationism? And we can say creationism is a Christian movement to replace the materialist worldview that reigns in the natural sciences with a Christian worldview so that the Christian worldview becomes the cosmological paradigm, the fundamental paradigm that guides science and society. Actually, it's not a unified movement so much as a united front. And any of you old lefties know about United Fronts. Uh, united Fronts are a collection of people who agree on one issue, and they may have a lot of disagreements among themselves. So within the creationist movement in this country, there are various kinds of creationists. Like, for instance, there are young earthers and old earthers. Uh, young earthers believe in a very literal interpretation of the Bible, that the universe is created in six days, and then there's the begats, and so through the begats, you can trace back the generations after Adam and Eve, and you come up with a figure around 6,000 years ago that the world was created. The older earth people, they don't interpret the Bible that literally, and they interpret the six days or seven days of creation as epics. So they're comfortable with the uh, evidence of geology, that there were these great epics, the Cambrian epic and so forth. But they still believe that God, of course, was responsible for creating this. And then there are people in this movement who are pro-Big Bang and anti-Big Bang. Some of them are delighted with the Big Bang because, just as Vip says, if you trace these causes back, you have to come to a first cause. Well, who did the Big Bang? Well, the answer is God. But the Big Bang isn't quite the way the Bible describes it again, so some people object to that. It's got to be just the way the Bible says it. Anyway, these various factions that make up the creationist movement range, in my opinion, from quite naive to actually very sophisticated, as we're going to see. So, the history of this creationism begins at the beginning of the 20th century, and it's part of a larger Christian movement to get back to fundamentals. That's why today we call them fundamentalists. And they listed what are the fundamentals of Christianity, and they include things like the actual physical resurrection, the uh, inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible can't have any mistakes in it and things like that. And this was a reaction to a liberal movement within Christianity that had more and more come to accept the evidence of science and ceased to interpret the Bible as literal truth. So they saw it as having deep spiritual truth, but they didn't necessarily believe the world was created in six days, and even to the point where they didn't believe that Jesus performed miracles. Uh, I think a modern representative of that stream of Christianity, a lot of you know, is Marcus Bohr, whose books we have in the library, and he is a liberal Christian. He 
He talks about the, the resurrection of Jesus this way. He says he believes in the resurrection as a spiritual event, but he doesn't think that if you could go back in a time machine with a video cam that you could actually record Jesus walking around. That's the way he puts it. So Christianity itself is really the basis of what we call today the cultural wars. It started as an inter-Christian dispute, and of course it spilled over, and the uh, fundamentalists and the creationists lump liberal Christians with atheist materialists and so forth. So that's the beginning of this, and the creationists uh, all through the century wanted creationism taught in public schools along with the Darwinian theory. And they tried to make this happen in various local forums. And there were several Supreme Court decisions uh, after the Second World War, one in uh, 68, one in 87, where the Supreme Court clearly said you cannot teach the biblical version of creation in biology classes in public schools because it violates the First Amendment, which is the separation of church and state. So after 87, the creationists did a switch on their tactics. And this is where it gets interesting, in my opinion. In 1991, a Christian law professor named Philip E. Johnson published a book called Darwin on Trial. And he coined this term intelligent design in that book, which has become very significant today. <clears throat> and he argued that there is scientific evidence not relying on the Bible, but scientific evidence that the universe was, in fact, created by some intelligent designer that exhibits intelligent design, and therefore there must be some agent behind this. And the great analogy for this, which modern intelligent designers use today, goes back to an analogy that was used by Reverend Paley. And he said, if you're walking along, well, in his case, he said a heath, but most of us don't know what a heath is anymore, not coming from England, so a beach will do. You're walking along a beach, and you find a clock, a watch, a Seiko, you know, and <laughs> you pick it up, and nobody has any problem inferring that this watch was made by an intelligent designer. So it's, you know, quite obvious. So if you look around nature, you find there's all this intelligent design. So we would infer an intelligent designer. So this is the fundamental approach of the creationists. Let's call them the intelligent designers or the believers in intelligent design. I call them the ideas here for short. And this theory of intelligent design, that there's scientific evidence that the universe exhibits intelligent design, has become the spearhead of what creationists call their wedge strategy. And since there's no mention of God here, it's left up to you to infer who the designer might be, then the idea is it's a scientific theory and it could be taught in public school curriculums and biology classes, see? So I'm not gonna go into this too much, but I've got these handouts here and you're welcome to pick one up afterwards. This is a paper that was passed out at a fundraiser in the 1990s at the Discovery Institute, which is one of the evangelical Christians' big institutes. And it's a 20-year plan, how to use intelligent design to get their case before the public, to get it into the schools, and to change the country. So it's very sophisticated, and this movement is very well organized, and it's very well funded. 
And they have made some inroads. They've had uh, presentations before congressional committees where they give their intelligent design evidence. Just this last May, the Kansas school board had hearings on evolution, and they ruled that evolution is an unproven, often disproven theory. This is the Kansas City School Board. So there's beginning to be some effects of all this. Now, ideas, the intelligent design people, see intelligent design in all fields of the natural sciences. So there are some people working on physics and so forth. But the main target here is Darwinism. Partly because Darwinism is more personal. You know, you talk about quantum mechanics and all that, and you lose most people. But when the question is, you know, were you descended from an ape? That kind of strikes home. You know, you talk about your family here. You know, I come from an Italian neighborhood. I know what happens when you talk about your family, you know. So Darwinism is their main enemy. So then the question is, what is Darwinism? Now, I know most of you went to school and you know what Darwinism, but we need a little refresher here, just a little refresher, and I'm going to boil it down in the simplest possible terms. So there are three components of Darwinism. There's first common ancestry. We all came from an original cell or whatever the original form of life was. It's all a tree that can be traced back to, you know, the original life form and all descended from that. Second is that Random genetic mutations create variations in what's called the phenotype. The genotype is what your genes look like, the DNA in your genes, and the phenotype is what comes out of all that. So it's the acorn and the tree. So if there's any kind of variation in the genes, then it'll create a variation in in the organism that develops out of that. And that these genes are constantly undergoing slight mutations, just spontaneously, randomly. It's not any design in it, it just happens. And then this brings us to the third component, natural selection. So, if a variation turns out to be useful to the organism that helps it survive, that will be selected through natural selection to get passed on to the next generation if it's uh, helpful for survival. So a good example would be zebra stripes. I'm making this up in terms of what happened, but it gets the point across. If you can imagine all these, let's say, uh, white horses running around on the African veld, uh, you know, you've seen all those nature shows, always it's the, the what is it, the, the Serengeti Plain, that's it, you know, over and over. My father said, I'm so sick of seeing the Serengeti Plain. Anyway, <laughs> they run around, and then in the uh, heat of the day, they go under some trees to get out of the, you know, the sun and all that. And they hang out under the trees and they munch in the grass and stuff. Now, if one of them gets a little variation that causes a little pigment difference, so a little black in the pigment, and they're hanging out in the trees and lions come by, they see the white, the solid white horses more easily than they see the horse that has this slight pigmentation. He blends in more with the shadows and all that in the trees, see? So the lion goes, eats the white horse. So the horse that has this new mutation survives a little longer and produces more offspring. And they also survive longer. And if there are more mutations within this gene pool, pretty soon you get these really elaborate streaks and spots. And they look very designed, but it's all been just naturally selected. 
So that's natural selection. So common ancestry, random genetic mutation, and natural selection for survival. So what is then the intelligent designs people critique of Darwinism? And the first point is that Darwinism is a theory. It's not a fact. And you can't observe evolution the way you can observe experiments and stuff like that. You can't go back in time and observe a zebra mutating through all these generations and coming up here. So this is really just a theory. It's not a, a fact. Then, more importantly, Darwinism cannot account for irreducible complexity that we find in nature. So this we need a little bit more explanation about. Uh, particularly at the cellular and molecular level. Now, this is where this guy, uh, Michael J. Behe, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, uh, comes in. He, by the way, is a professor of biology at uh, Leah University in Pennsylvania. So he's a legitimate professor and all that. And his point is, first of all, that in the last 40 years, Biology has made these fantastic discoveries at the molecular level within the cells themselves. That originally, everybody thought the cells were pretty simple. There was a cell, there was a wall, there was a nucleus, there was some ganglia in there, and plasm. But now, using electron microscopes and stuff, they found that the cell is extraordinarily complex. I was very impressed, by the way, reading this. It's, I was taught this uh, simple version of the cell in, in my biology class, but it turns out it's very, very complex. So this is what casts doubt on uh, the Darwinian theory. So he's the one who's leading the charge with this book, Darwin's Black Box, to point out that there is evidence that there is intelligent design in the uh, organisms. And the examples he gives are things like blood clotting, the immune system. These require very complex chemical reactions and chains of reactions at that level. And uh, one of the things he uses as an example is vision. And I thought I would, but I don't think I will. I was going to read you the three pages it takes to describe what happens from the time a photon hits the eyeball until the time an electric charge is sent along the nerve to the brain. And it is extremely complex and unpronounceable. You know, there are <laughs> nucleotides and phototides and prototides and whatnot, all doing these various things. And they're going up and down and cross membranes and this and that. It's extremely complex. So, he's saying, his point is, natural selection cannot account for this kind of irreducible complexity that has to happen step by step. It can't happen all at once in natural selection. It, it, unless it would be just incredible that all these mutations would happen together to produce an eye all at once. And his point is, and let's just break it down and not at the chemical level, but just at the level that we know. The photon hits the lens, goes through the lens, hits the retina, starts causing all these chain reactions, uh, goes back through the eyeball, then a charge goes through the optic nerve to the brain. Now, supposing there's no eye yet, and there's a mutation that produces something as complex, and it would be very unlikely, as an optic nerve. But what good would it do that organism? There would be no reason to select for the continuation of the optic nerve. In fact, it would be a burden. It would be an extra thing that the organism has that isn't helping it at all. Or supposing it produced a lens. Or supposing it produced a retina. 
Any of those things, each of which, by the way, is extremely complex on its own, isn't going to help the organism. So this looks like an intelligently designed organ, the whole eye, that has to be designed altogether. You can't get there step by step. This is his point. So then, of course, as I said before, the designer isn't necessarily God. You could posit extraterrestrials design this or whatever. <laughs> but Bayer says he's a Catholic and he admits that most Christians in this country, most religious people are Christians, are going to conclude that it must have been God who'd done it. So this isn't part of his scientific argument, but this is his own philosophical extrapolation, so to speak. In any case, the slogan of the intelligent designers is teach the controversy. There's a controversy about Darwin and about the evolutionary theory, and we have the scientific evidence to prove it and teach it as an alternate scientific theory in the classrooms of America. Now, I must tell you, when I read this book, I was quite impressed. I really was. You know, he's not like one of these old-time religion people, and I believe it because my parents believed it. It's very good, solid uh, arguments and so forth. But then, how do the Darwinians respond to this? So, I'm going to give you the other side of it now. First of all, there's no controversy, they say. Virtually 100% of the scientific biological establishment is behind the Darwinian theory. There's no controversy within the establishment, the biological establishment, about Darwinism. And they point out, for instance, that this guy, Bihei, has never written any papers for biological journals that undergo peer review or anything like that. He's just gone directly to the public with his theories. He's not trying to convince the scientists per se, he's just trying to convince the public. So it looks a little politicized here. Secondly, Darwinism can account for this complexity through natural selection. And there are two ways to do this, which are quite fascinating. Uh, one is a reverse order, or let's not say so much reverse, but not a straight line order of the development of the complexity that we're talking about. So let me give you an example. Let's go back to the eye. By the way, I'm way oversimplifying these things, but this is the general gist of it. Let's say there's an organism before any vision has been developed that has a mutation of one cell that is light sensitive. That's all it would take to give this little organism an advantage and be naturally selected. And then let's say that there are more mutations along these lines. So not only is it just light sensitive, but it begins to have the crudest sense of the composition of the light that's coming, whether it's light or dark or whatever. And then finally, this becomes a retina. And then maybe there's some sort of slime covering the organism that reflects, or no, not what do you call it? Reflects. Reflects, thank you the light. So we actually starting to get some very, very crude images. And then it goes on from there. Then by this time, the organism has lost its first light sensitive cell. So you can't go in there and find it. It's ditched that because it's constantly built better and better apparatuses. So the evolution happens out of order. It's not like all in a sequence, the, the nerve and this and that. Each one is a slight improvement on the other ones, and you finally end up with an eye. And they also point out, by the way, that there are, I've forgotten the exact figure, but at least 14 different kinds of eyes out there that obviously took different routes. 
So a fly's eye is not like our eye. So it's not like just once we got the principle down, that was it. Each one developed differently. So the other one is very interesting, and I'd never heard of this before. It's called endosymbiosis. And this was developed by a biologist named Lynn Margulis. And she proposed this theory in 1967, and it was scoffed at by the establishment. But in the 1980s, there were several cases where it got verified. And this was that two organisms develop a symbiotic relationship and eventually merge and become one organism, and each performing a different function. So it's quite complex. So a cell could have a symbiotic relationship with a bacterium, and then eventually the cell incorporates the bacterium, and they start functioning together, and they become totally dependent on each other, and they lose the distinction of being two organisms, and they're serving each other. A symbiotic relationship, by the way, is like the little tick birds that ride on the backs of rhinoceroses. You know, they pick the ticks off the rhinoceros, so they help the rhinoceros, you know, get rid of his ticks, and then they get fed. So it's a mutually enjoyable relationship. Yeah, to the well, Serengeti plane, right? On the Serengeti plane. <laughs> yes, indeed, on the Serengeti plane. Okay. <laughs> so these are two things that show that Darwinism can explain this so-called irreducible complexity. Then, this theory of intelligent design is not really a scientific theory because it can't explain how this intelligent designer actually manipulates the matter that's required to create the design. So if you see a watch on the beach and you think, aha, I'm human beings here before, you know how the human being actually made the watch, you know, with their hands and tools and things like that. But if you infer that the eye must have been intelligently designed, how exactly did this disembodied intelligent designer get in there and actually physically arrange the, uh, the molecules to create the eye? And at what point did this happen? They can't uh, explain that. And the theory, according to the Darwinians, is not falsifiable. Now, this takes a little bit of an explanation, but you can read up more about this in the future if you're interested. Uh, we're taught usually that the thing about a scientific theory is that it's verifiable. You do tests and you verify the theory. A philosopher named Karl Popper came along in the 20th century and he said, that's not really accurate. That's not enough. That's true. Tests do verify. They tend to verify a theory. But if you ask how many tests are necessary to verify a theory, you can't specify a number. It's arbitrary. And many, many tests could verify a theory, but then something could come along and it no longer works. So this is key. Is the theory falsifiable? And in order to be a scientific theory, you have to be able to propose a test. You have to say, this is my theory, and if I'm wrong, this is how you could find out. You do this test, and if it fails, then the theory is wrong. So that's falsifiability. So, for instance, the Darwinians say their whole theory is falsifiable if you found a human skeleton in the Cambrian era of geology. The Cambrian era was the very beginning of the complexity of life. If you find a full-fledged human being there, well, our theory is out the window because it requires all this time to get from there to the human being. So it is falsifiable. No one's so far falsified it in that way, but it is falsifiable, according to the Darwinians now. And then uh, the trouble with this intelligent design is that their intelligent designer is a god of the gaps. 
Anytime we can't explain something, oh, we'll just invoke intelligent design. God did it, you know? Don't understand quantum fluctuations? Well, God done it. And whatever you want, God done it. So it's not useful. It doesn't go anywhere with that. And then finally and related, uh, it violates natural science's prohibition against invoking supernatural forces to explain natural phenomena. So that's just like, again, invoking the God of the gaps saying God done it. So this is a prohibition in natural sciences. So it may qualify as philosophy, but it can't qualify as natural uh, science. It's not a scientific theory, according to the Darwinians. I want to make a very quick digression here. Historically, this is important, not only for logical reasons why supernatural forces are excluded from natural science, but there's also a historical dimension to this that's quite interesting and perhaps important to us today. And that is that a very strong impetus to develop modern science as we know it came from the 16th century wars of religion. And the wars of religion in Europe started when Protestantism broke off from Catholicism. So there were all these doctrinal disputes. And there really was no way of solving these doctrinal disputes except by killing each other. So there were these extremely vicious wars that tore Europe apart for a hundred years, all through the 16th century, between the Protestants and Catholics and raised Protestant groups and so forth. And it really exhausted Europe. And many intellectuals really got fed up with all this. And the way uh, natural science got going really as a movement is that these wealthy intellectuals got together and they made a rule, we're not going to talk about religion because it's not going to go anywhere. We can't prove anything. We're just going to talk about what we call natural philosophy. So we're just going to discuss things in nature. And so this led to the British Royal Society, for instance, and Newton was uh, a member of the British Royal Society and they promoted his ideas and Darwin was several hundred years later. So this idea that we're not going to invoke supernatural causes had a political aspect to it. And that was that, you know, there's no way to settle these doctrinal disputes, but we can settle natural philosophy disputes, or as we say today, natural sciences, by tests. We'll go out and do an experiment and we'll verify it or falsify it or whatever. So that's where the history of this idea comes from. And then finally, the... Darwinians accused the intellectual design believers of having an a priori commitment to the Christian worldview. So they're not really open. They're not really looking for truth. They have an agenda. They want to get the Christian worldview into the, uh, into the classrooms, and they don't really care how they do it. So this is not, again, true science. Okay. How do the intelligent design people rebut this? Well, they do have some rebuttals. First of all, they admit up front they want to change what qualifies as a scientific explanation. And the reason is they say this rule against invoking supernatural forces, first of all, is arbitrary. It's just an arbitrary ad hoc rule. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from science itself. And second of all, they ask, what if the truth is there are supernatural forces at work in the universe? then arbitrarily barring them as explanation bars science from discovering the truth. We should get rid of it. And they also point out that the Darwinians also have a priori commitments, at least a lot of them do, to a materialist worldview, just as they have an a priori commitment to a Christian worldview. 
So what's the difference? They're committed to a philosophy, we're committed to a religion. So that's where the debate is in broad outlines between the creationists and the Darwinians. So now, even though you didn't ask, I'm going to ask, where do I stand as a mystic in all this debate here? Well, I got to tell you, and I'm by no means an expert on this, but the Darwinians have persuaded me that you could account for all this irreducible complexity through natural selection. I think they make some good arguments, the other people, but I don't think that they have made any conclusive arguments. And so Darwinism is, you know, a theory that has so many other things going for it. It still holds as far as I'm concerned. But this isn't really what I want to talk about. If you're interested, you go out and you read the literature and whatnot, you come to your own decision. I think we have bigger fish to fry here. Uh, You know, this is one little uh, battle in a big war going on. And I have uh, sympathies with the intelligent design people. I, too, as a mystic, want to replace the materialist worldview with something else. Because from a mystic's point of view, or any spiritual person's point of view, the materialist worldview is a dead end. If you really believe in the materialist worldview, even if you have spiritual longings or feelings or whatever, they don't fit into the worldview, you're just going to suppress them or ignore them. So it really is a dead end, and it doesn't allow for or give any validity to anybody pursuing any kind of spiritual path or anything like that. But I don't want to replace the materialist worldview with a fundamentalist Christian worldview or any other religious worldview that was developed in pre-scientific cultures. I just don't think it's going to work. And I don't want to destroy the effectiveness of natural science. I do think it's a good distinction to keep natural science. And we might note here that this organization is called the Center for Sacred Sciences. We don't confuse here sacred sciences with natural sciences. And we don't think that the mystical teachings are scientific theories or anything like that. There are some similarities In science, you have theories, and you verify them or falsify them through tests. In mysticism, you have teachings, and you can verify them through practices and things like that. But all we say is they are compatible. We're not trying to substitute or make the mystical teachings into scientific theories or claim they are scientific theories. So, uh, I also agree with the creationists that evolution is just a theory. But you know what? All scientific statements are just theories. And in fact, in science, there really aren't even any facts. That all facts are theory-laden. We're playing with theories. We're not playing with truth. We're not playing with reality. We're playing with theories. So that's true, but it's, okay, big deal. So what? I also agree that the Darwinians, at least some of them, and other uh, scientists who are materialists, are guilty as charged. They do have prior commitments to materialism, which clouds their vision of things. They don't? No. I'm going to read you a quote by one who does. Wait, a little patience. That's a good spiritual verse. Here's Harvard biologist uh, Richard Luantin. He says, It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a materialist explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. Moreover, 
That materialism is absolute. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, that's a pretty clear statement that he's committed to materialism out front, and he doesn't want to hear anything about any spirituality or anything else. So, what about this? Now, part of this, I think this controversy is not so important, is that materialism has already been rendered obsolete by quantum mechanics. Here's Werner Heisenberg, and you can investigate this for yourself. Werner Heisenberg was one of the founders of quantum mechanics. Uh, he was the first one, actually, who came up with the whole thing. Here's what he says. Quantum theory has led the physicists far away from the simple materialistic view that prevailed in the natural science of the 19th century. So, uh, Lewinton may be married to this materialist worldview. He's a biologist at Harvard, but he just hasn't studied any quantum mechanics, or he doesn't believe it, or whatever. By the way, biology is one of the really last great bastions of materialism. A lot of physicists wouldn't you know, agree that there's anything mystical going on, but they at least admit that you can't make old-fashioned materialism work with quantum mechanics. Here specifically is what quantum mechanics has done. Replaced causality with probability. Vip raised this, whether it's these causal chains and so forth. You know what? There's no such thing as causality, according to science. We'd still talk about it, of course, and it's very useful to, but when we're talking about causality at the macro level, let's say in Darwinism and stuff, what we're talking about is very, very high degrees of probability. You can just, for all practical purposes, ignore the fact that something might not happen, but it's a non-zero chance that it will happen in some way that's not predicted. It's replaced determinism by uncertainty. Determinism is... If you know the initial conditions, then you can predict where, let's say, a tennis ball is going to end up. Well, guess what? You cannot predict the initial conditions anymore. And this isn't just that we don't know. It's built into the mathematical formalism of the theory. We cannot know the position and the momentum of a particle at the same time. So we can't know the initial conditions. And something like this, this clock... It's only made up of subatomic particles. There ain't nothing else in the clock. It obeys quantum mechanical laws, even though it's a big object. And because it's a big object, all these probabilities add up. And so the probability that if I throw the clock this way, he's going to catch it. Is, well, the probability is going to end up there, whether he catches it or not is that. But if I threw it over here and it ended up here, it's not a non-zero chance that would happen. And then locality and non-locality. In materialism, causes have to propagate through time and space. In quantum mechanics, there are relationships that transcend time and space. So there's non-local connections, as they put it. And then finally, objectivity. For materialism, there's you, and then there's the world out there, and there's objective facts. And there's, the world is the way it is, and it's our job to discover it. But in quantum mechanics, how we perform experiments does affect how the world appears. So there's an entanglement of subject and object here. So these are just four basic fundamental principles of materialism that no longer hold. By the way, quantum mechanics is the foundations, along with relativity, the foundations of physics, and chemistry is based on physics, and biology rests on chemistry. So we don't escape and say, well, that's over there in physics, and we're dealing with biology. So, 
we don't need to go through all this irreducible complexity and the evidence of design and all that to knock materialism out of the water. Materialism is a sinking ship already. And one of the reasons that so many people in the scientific establishment still adhere to it, frankly, is there's nothing better on the horizon at the moment. And so it's always better to hang on to a sinking ship than, uh, you know, abandon ship altogether. And I think that this is part and parcel of this larger picture that we're looking at. This crisis in the worldview of modern civilization. That materialism doesn't work anymore, and we don't know what to replace it with. It's one of the reasons I think that there's this strong fundamentalist Christian movement, and not just Christian, but it's in Islam, it's in Judaism, it's in Hinduism, this back to the old-time religion. At least that's something that you can hang on to. And it's something that satisfies deep yearnings of the human heart. We're going to get to that in a minute. But we have a crisis in our culture that affects all departments of knowledge. And this book that I mentioned here, uh, Reality Isn't What It Used to Be, addresses that. It's in the philosophy departments and literature departments, deconstructionism and all that. And at the base of it is we can't seem to disentangle the subject from the object. We can't seem to arrive at a clearly objective knowledge. So what we need then is a whole new worldview. And one that doesn't change natural science, but now we have to be able to account for science's successes. Up until quantum mechanics, materialism did a pretty good job of accounting for why science was successful. Science is still tremendously successful, but nobody has any idea why. So one of the uh, tasks of a worldview is to account for that. So can creationism be that worldview? Well, my answer would be no. And first of all, because creationism is a hybrid theory. It depends in a funny way on materialism. It's interesting. You have to have a background of natural causes in order to spot these oases of irreducible complexity. So if you go back to the analogy of finding the watch on the beach, the reason you look at the watch and say, oh, somebody designed this, is because everything around you is natural, is undesigned in that fashion. So if the creationists are right, their God has to be not the God of the whole universe, but some sort of God who comes along and tinkers here and tinkers there, and the rest of it all has to be the way the materialists say. And they admit as much. They have no problem with material cause and effect and all the things that materialism uh, their whole view of how nature works. So really what's going on, I think, if you look at it, is the creationists are trying to turn the Bible into a scientific theory and then go duke it out with the materialists on their own turf. And I don't think they're going to win, frankly. I mean, in the long, long run. And this attempt to make the Bible or any scripture into a scientific theory also dooms the scripture. All scientific theories are ephemeral. At least that's been the history so far. They've all been replaced by something else. Something else is going to come along and we're going to throw out the old theory and we're going to have a new theory. Now, if your Bible is a scientific theory, guess what? What happens when the theory du jour goes out the window. What happens to your God and your Bible and all that? And frankly, I have too much respect for these great texts 
the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, the Vedas, and all that, I think they contain tremendous wisdom in their form appropriate to that. And I don't want to see them be thrown out. I don't want to see us get rid of them. You know, the story of the Garden of Eden is a very profound psycho-spiritual story of the fall in a dramatic narrative. So I'm not interested in getting rid of these great texts, but they aren't scientific and they shouldn't be scientific. And it demeans them to bring them down to a scientific theory. So pre-modern Christianity, as well as Islam or Hinduism and all that, they still are valid paths to spiritual salvation or liberation. They can work, but they can't serve as scientific theories. And, you know, it's a little bit like you got a, an automobile and it's broken. What do you do? Well, you go back and you get a horse and you hitch it up to the automobile, you know, to limp along with you're first of all going back in time and you're getting something that doesn't even work as well as the automobile used to work. And besides that, we need a spaceship. We don't need a horse-drawn automobile. We need something to soar on. And I don't think creationism is that spaceship or can be that spaceship. So, is there such a worldview around that could be our spaceship? And I don't know of one, frankly. So if you know one, let me know. But I don't know of one, but I think that we can get inspiration by looking at the teachings of the mystics. Not that they're going to give us a scientific theory, but they're going to give us something larger, a cosmological paradigm, I call it, which will, and has to do two things, explain how science works and solve some of the problems that materialism can't, and validate and legitimate a spiritual quest. So it's not a scientific theory of worldview. It's something bigger, but it will be inclusive of both. So um, what are the teachings of the mystics on this particular question? And I think if you examine them, you're going to find incredible intersubjective agreement. And I'm oversimplifying again, but I think it boils down to two things. One, the ultimate reality, the absolute God, Brahman, Buddha nature, the Tao, whatever the tradition calls it, is non-dual. Non-dual in a transcendent fashion that even transcends the duality between non-duality and duality. So it's kind of paradoxical, but to get one word to sum up the teaching, non-duality will do. And that the apparent multiplicity of the world is not objectively real, set in the world, but it is an effect of imagination, thought, speech, uh, how we conceive of things. These distinctions and boundaries are projected by consciousness, and then the world appears according to how we've created them. And different cultures draw different distinctions and different boundaries. And that's why the world appears to them differently. So I just want to read you a few quotes here, just to hopefully shock and awe you with this intersubjective agreement. Here's a Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart. If we will see things truly, they are strangers to goodness, truth, and everything that tolerates any distinction. They are intimates of the one that is bare of any kind of multiplicity. That's a Christian mystic. Here's the Buddhist Lakanvatara Sutra a famous Buddhist text. False imagination teaches that such things as light and shade, 
long and short, black and white, are different and are to be discriminated. But they are not independent of each other. They are only different aspects of the same thing. They are terms of relation, not of reality. In essence, things are not two, but one. All duality is falsely imagined. You think Meister Eckhart would have agreed with that? Here's Zhong Su, a Taoist. These are different times, different cultures, different places, very different. The way, the Tao, has never known boundaries. Speech has no constancy. But because of the recognition of a this, there came to be boundaries. Ordinary men discriminate among them and parade their discriminations before others. So I say, those who discriminate fail to see. If you are fixated on the boundaries, the discrimination of one thing from another, Here's the great Hindu mystic Shankara. The absolute becomes subject to modification and to all empirical experience through distinctions consisting of name and form, which are imagined through ignorance and are the mere results of the activity of speech. The partlessness of the absolute is in no way affected by them. Here's the great Sufi poet, Rumi. Form was born from speech. Same thing again. Form was born from speech and then died. It took its wave back to the sea. Form comes out of formlessness. Then it returns, for unto him we are returning. And the last one here is from a Jewish scholar named Joseph Dan, and he's writing about a Kabbalist text named Sefer Yezira, and he's summing up what this text is about. And he says, Suffice it to say that the main concept is the development of the idea of creation by language into a scientific system. The author claims that if God created the universe by language, then the laws of the universe are the laws of language. Natural science is identified with grammar. Or perhaps mathematics, which is the language of modern science. So here we have this idea that somehow the world is not described by our language, our thoughts, our ideas, but is actually created by them. Now, this is very interesting because this is one of the big problems of modern science. Here's physicist Eugene Wigner, and he talks about mathematics, and he says, he calls it the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. Why should mathematics be so effective? Nobody knows that, you know? These scientists make up these equations. They don't find the equations written in the stars. And they apply them, and my God, the world seems to respond. And that's exactly what mystics would say. The world is responding to their mathematics. And we could get a very, very crude idea of how this could possibly be by thinking of a tree and an axe, a Stone Age axe. Think of the tree as the world. And, you know, the tree has no distinction. You look at the tree and you say, you know, I want to make a log cabin. 
If you have a Stone Age axe and you have no mathematics and you don't have any measuring instruments and stuff like that, you can hack up that tree and get, you know, 50, 100 logs out of this, and then you can pile them together and get a log cabin, crude log cabin. So you're still making the distinctions. You're looking at it, and then you're chopping it up, and then you're putting it back together. Now, if you have rulers and measuring instruments and compasses and fine, uh, you know, hacksaws and so forth, and you can not only chop up the trees into the logs and make a log cabin, but you can get planks and you can build a house like this house, and then you can actually get really fine carpentry work. Very, very precise, because you now have mathematics, you're measuring devices. You're still making the distinction. You're still starting with this tree that has no distinction. You're imposing these distinctions on it, and whatever distinctions you impose, then you chop it up, rearrange it, it'll come out that way. And the more precise the distinctions, the more precise you're gonna be able to do this. But this only works if we understand that it is we who are creating the distinctions. They aren't there already. And then we see why mathematics works. Okay. So this kind of worldview, I said we don't have one yet, but this kind of worldview would save natural science from a God of the gaps kind of idea. We can ask natural science to stick to spelling out relationships between quantifiable phenomena. We don't have to bring in materialism or materialist things or anything. If it's quantifiable, science can deal with it. If it's not quantifiable, it's out of science's range. That's all there is to it. And if you got supernatural forces that are quantifiable, fine, bring them on, as our president says. Uh, if not, leave them alone. Let mysticism deal with them. And then... Uh, finally, a mystical worldview uh, does, I think, what really fundamentalists of any religion are responding to, part of what they're responding to, and that is validate this genuine spiritual yearning that most people have, an intuition. There's something out there beyond me. There is an absolute. There is a God or a Brahman or whatever, and I can have some relationship to it, and even more... I can actually discover that that is my nature. And so this worldview legitimates that yearning, that intuition. Because a spiritual worldview, while it will not be falsifiable, which is one reason it's not scientific, is verifiable. It is verifiable, not in the, quote, the objective sense that you can perform an experiment everybody can come look at, but it's verifiable for you. You're the authority for each individual. You follow the practices, and mystics say, here, we've got practices. You want to verify it? These are things you can do. And it is possible. Anybody can verify it for themselves. You don't have to just take it on blind faith. So that's what a mystical worldview could do. But there's one catch. There's always a catch, and that is if you want to verify mystical teachings, regardless of whether they become the new worldview or whatever, if you want to verify mystical teachings, then, as fascinating as scientific theories are, mathematics is, as fascinating as worldviews are and paradigms and all that, and as necessary as they all are to human life, to human discourse and all that, which I didn't get into because we don't want to be here forever, as necessary and fascinating as they are, if you want to verify mystical teachings, you have to leave all that behind eventually. You have to leave it all behind. You have to go beyond the thought, the speech, the distinctions, the concepts, and all that to see, to realize 
to recognize that non-dual absolute reality. And so I'd like to leave this with a word of a Christian who maybe I would recommend to other Christians. This is St. John of the Cross, and he says, To reach union with the wisdom of God, a person must advance by unknowing rather than by knowing. Now, text for anybody else. Yeah, I have a big problem with some of the what I think is the content of what you're saying. Sure. If, if I can say. I'm open to... Uh... You, you know, I, I, it's not necessarily a disagreement. It's just a different way of maybe looking at the same thing. Um, you were talking about empiricist and materialist. Yes. And I realized you were just glossing over a lot of these things, and you were speaking very broadly. Um, but you were kind of implying that the, that the real orientation is necessarily an objective when I think many times many people who call themselves materialists or empiricists are really humanists. And hum humanism is a it's actually a religion, humanism. And, and I find it to be pretty much tantamount to self-worship humanism. This is, this is my, only, my, own, my own opinion. But, so you didn't really make that distinction, but according to the nature of what you're saying, it would be very difficult to do. But I did want to make that point. A lot of people represent themselves as Darwinians or a lot of biologists like Stephen Jay Gould or Carl Sagan, these people are really humanist, and, and they don't have the, the self-insight to say that, that they're humanist, and that's the altar that they really worship at. And the other thing, and, and this is a little bit of a deeper thing, but I think it's very important, is the mystical thing that you're kind of talking about, it seems to be that there's a lot of pantheism and, mo and monism yes. implicit in it. Yes, indeed. Okay, but the problem with finding in Jesus Another mystic is that, is that Jesus emphatically was not a pantheist or a monist or, or anything like that. He said that there's a way that's correct for people, and, and there's a way that isn't, you, you see. But implicit in a lot of this mystical stuff is that all ways are eventually the same, and he, he would have been the last. So I think to equate Jesus as a mystic would, is, would be completely wrong, not to say that much of the content of what he said was not mystical in nature, but to, to imply him as it's all one and it's all good, that just can't, this teaching can't possibly be construed that way, even if you read only the parts in red. From <laughs> Actually, the parts in red, I, uh, not the parts that I think are the mystical parts, but... But, but on the other hand, the, the most, I think, the most relevant part, of, I mean, the most, the one thing in, in the Bible that speaks to what you're talking about most closely, and I think it's hugely important not to overlook, is that there is a unity, I think it's in John, where it says, he who dwells in, in love dwells in God, right, and what, and God in him. And that very strongly implies no division. So that, that there's, it's one thing, that in compassion and in joy, that see you, you would be there. But it's very different to say that it's all good and it's all one, is, see, if you say Jesus was a mystic and try to... Oh, I didn't say Jesus was a mystic today, did I? No, yeah. I'm not. See, I'm I quoted from other mystics. I quoted Meister Eckhart. I quoted St. John of the Cross, who do, in fact, say that. Yeah. So, you could say there's mystical content, truly, in what okay. Jesus said. This is a, a whole argument. No, that's not, all I wanted yeah, to say. Right. It's very important to draw those distinctions because I think they're huge. Let me say, first of all, the humanist-materialist thing, I don't think it's incompatible to be a materialist and a humanist, and you could also be a materialist and not be a humanist and all that. I'm sure but, I admit it. Yeah, which is fine, and you're right, but that's a whole other, you know, discussion. We can't cover everything in one talk. Uh, 
the the second thing is this whole business of Jesus. I will admit to you, I could not definitively say Jesus was a mystic. I read the Gospels, and there's a lot of things in the Gospels in which Jesus is, doesn't sound like a mystic. So I come to that conclusion. I do, by the way, believe he was a mystic. I come to that conclusion through secondary sources, through scholarship that attributes a lot of his messianic stuff to later writings that he didn't actually say, to uh, the Gospel of Thomas, which is an early gospel, which is clearly mystical. And frankly, Jesus doesn't make any sense to me if he's not a mystic. Because that means everybody else, they, they were all great mystics, and suddenly here's this you know, nutcase over here. It just doesn't work for me. So once you see he's a mystic, and this is speculation, he's a mystic and he wasn't completely understood by all his disciples who split off and started different communities and got very politicized because it became the struggle for the soul of the Roman Empire. Then I can see where Christianity ends up today. And Christianity is clearly not mystical as a whole religion. I don't claim Christianity is any more, by the way, than Hinduism is, Islam is, Judaism is, you know, uh, there are mystical elements and currents. And the last thing is that the Christian mystics all looked to Jesus as a mystic. They all thought he was a mystic, even though their compatriots didn't necessarily think he was a mystic. So it's an open question. I'm not insisting that Jesus was a mystic. Maybe he wasn't. I think it's too bad if he wasn't. <laughs> no, no, I would say... Core, I think he makes a great mystic. <laughs> yeah, the core of what he's teaching was entirely mystical. Uh, in, in that there is a... In, in love, right? There's a union in God, and, and there is a unity there. And Gnosis. But no, the other no, side... No, that's exactly what I was going to say. That, that Gnosis stuff, that, that is something else entirely. Because that, that goes to like, oh, it's... Then we're back to pantheists and the monism. Well, so what did Jesus say? Know the truth and it'll make you free. And what is the word in Greek? Gnosis. It is. Go look it up. It's a semantic trick. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm a literalist. See, I take the Bible literally, boy. Okay. Who else wants to say something? Yes. Did you conclude that... Unknowing is more important than knowing in some respect? Yes. If you want to know, and this is paradoxical, if you want to know the absolute truth, you can't know the absolute truth through our normal ways of what we mean by knowing, which is usually either experience or thinking. So there's some other way of knowing, to put it a little simplistically. So that's why if you want to know God, you have to proceed through unknowing. So we have to we have to suspend that knowledge, not get rid of it, but we have to put it on hold, suspend it, in order to have a direct realization, a direct uh, encounter with the truth. I didn't learn uh, to know God and without knowing. They shoved him down my throat. Me too. But that, for us. <laughs> that God I upchucked long ago. <laughs> In the back, yes. I like to illustrate the point about knowing and unknowing. I'll give you an example that happened that I saw yesterday. Somebody had lost their glasses in the grass at the beach and looked everywhere. And it was nothing there, and it was not, and suddenly there were the commentaries about where it might be, etc. And everybody was getting involved and looking for those glasses everywhere. 
and until people were starting to joke about commenting about where the glasses might be. Um, but on the end, well, they might be there, and they might not be there, and they might be there, and they might not be there. And suddenly you create an atmosphere of, well, never mind, they lost. <laughs> and as soon as everybody had accepted that it was lost, it was right in front of you. And I feel that I associate with the not knowing, suddenly you find. But in order to find, you have to activate the knowing. You have to really search. It's not going to happen to find the glasses by accident, not without searching them. Because of a key point of, that you mentioned in your talk, uh, of duality and oneness. And I'd like you, if I may, ask you to repeat the quote of Master Eckhart. Uh, yes. Because I might want to challenge you. <laughs> He wouldn't have mind. The whole Catholic Church challenged him. <laughs> uh, if we will see things truly, they are strangers to goodness, truth, and everything that tolerates any distinction. They are intimates of the one that is bare of any kind of multiplicity. Yeah. We are challenging him is that multiplicity is the other side of oneness. Therefore, we have a duality right there. Therefore, multiplicity has to be included in the oneness. Any duality, anything that could have an opposite, we're dealing with a paradox. And the oneness has to be found in the unification of two opposites. And yeah. when we apply that, and you get into the unknowing, <laughs> but you have to really apply it. So. I would suggest that if we're going to be this precise about these things, it's dangerous to take them out of context because mystical teachings are stage-specific and so forth. Now, specifically with Meister Eckhart, for instance, he has lots of teachings that have to do with everything speaks of God, everything is God, you know, so he is very much of a pantheistic monist in that sense and all mystics Bless are oh no no there's no question about that if we want to put a philosophical label on it uh, all mystics are and so you're right he is emphasizing here seeing things truly and the reason is that most of us our problem isn't that we see the unity our problem is we see the multiplicity and that's all we see so this is why mystics are always pointing us to the unity the one and beyond the duality once we see the unity, then we see that there's no distinction between unity and duality. But in the meantime, we keep looking for God among all these things, as though God were another thing among all these things. Maybe a super thing, but some thing among all these things. And mystics keep saying it's not so. God is not another thing among the multiple things. You know, So we have to look beyond. And then your other thing, I think you're very right about that analogy of looking for the glasses, and then you have to look. In 99% of the cases, there are cases where there's been spontaneous awakening, which apparently no looking happened. But you're right, and there's a reason why that's the case. Because in order to be open to seeing the one, 
we have to surrender all this activity, which is creating the distinctions and the divisions and all that. And we can't surrender ourselves. So what we can do is exhaust the effort. And then we are brought to the surrender. So that's why we almost always need to do the searching. You're very right. And you just described the paradoxical dynamic of the spiritual path. So thank you. Wonderful word, exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this is sort of more of the political, and I'm sorry I missed the first of the talk, but the anti-Darwinists, I just was curious about what, whether they, what their viewpoint on the candidate, is there any of that? Yes, actually very interesting. There was one physicist I ran across, William Dembski, a philosopher of physics, if he's not a physicist, and he has the same thing about intelligent design, and he has figured out a mathematical model for what would constitute intelligent design as a violation of probabilities, which is what quantum mechanics deals in. So random events will have a certain probability, but if events violate this, if they have a more probability of happening than would happen randomly, then you can recognize mathematically intelligent design, an instance of intelligent design. It's fascinating, except you can't define randomness, for one thing. And second of all, the whole thing is the same problem with the Darwinians. It depends on there being a background of randomness. So if God is just the creator of these pockets of design, then what about the rest of it? God is not the omnipotent creator. God is just some little tinkerer who runs through the universe and, you know, patches things up. So yes, there is some addressing of it, but again, to my mind, it's not convincing. Could you serve the tea in here, please? No, when we can break, uh, end the formal part of the morning, and if uh, any of you, uh, I actually have to see somebody this afternoon, but you're welcome to talk among yourselves. Check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all. <laughs>